Welcome to War on the Rocks' new podcast, uh, our latest podcast episode. We actually have our biggest group of uh, participants, interview subjects, whatever we want to call them. Uh, this time around, well, let's go around there and let's start. Start with you, Bridge. Great. Hi, uh, Elbridge Colby. I'm a defense analyst in uh, Washington, area. Uh, Bill Rosenow. I'm a uh, senior analyst at CNA Strategic Studies. Afshan Ostevar. I'm Brian Fishman. I'm a counterterrorism research fellow at the New America Foundation. I'm Bill Braniff. I'm the executive director at the Star Consortium at the University of Maryland. And I should say that the last two people, Brian and Bill, both did not know they would be participating today. <laughs> Which makes it more fun. Which makes it more fun. Um, so there's a lot going on this week, and we were talking earlier when we were trying to figure out what we would, what we would talk about. Um, a lot of the stuff that's most interesting and perhaps... Um, most important is not getting the most attention. But today, obviously, a lot of the, you'll be hearing this tomorrow, but a lot of the news today is about um, President Obama's speech at the United Nations, as well as President Rouhani, new president of Iran, um, from the reformist wing in Iran, we're told, and their respective speeches um, at the UN today. And uh, I know Afshan looks at these areas closely, particularly in Iran. And so I guess my question is, is the election of President Rouhani a game-changer? Does it signal any real change in Iranian foreign security policy? I think in the immediate future, yeah. You know, um, Rouhani was elected, it seems, by a popular sort of uh, mandate to be able to begin engagement with the West to decrease Iran's isolation and to solve the sort of international problems that Iran's facing. And at least if rhetoric counts, they seem to be sincere on that front. Yeah, I feel like he's in a tough position today. I actually sympathize with the guy because when he spoke to the UN today, he had to signal to the hardliners back home that he could still be trusted while also signaling to the West that he can be someone they can do business with. And so he spent like the first two-thirds of his speech without even really mentioning the United States, slamming the United States uh, in pretty vigorous language. And then the last end of the speech said we only talk about the nuclear program. But it, was there anything new there? I mean, he was the negotiator for the nuclear program. Has any of his rhetoric since he's from that role to now president changed on the yeah. nuclear issue? Well, I think what has changed is the tone of it. I mean, certainly the, the tone of the idea of engagement seems much more real and sincere this time around than it did previously. I think what's going to be the problem is how sincere the regime is, not Rouhani, but the Supreme Leader, the IRGC, and all the constituencies that are important uh, to decision-making in Iran, how sincere and willing they are to actually compromise, because it's going to take compromise to create a deal with the United States. And while they may be willing to compromise to an extent to bring the United States to the table and have some sort of discussions go forward, whether they're really willing to take those those tangible uh, steps forward uh, in in somehow making their nuclear program seem safe to the outside world, I think is is still uh, a question that's that's going to remain for quite some time. It's very easy for this to get scuttled by the sort of right wing within Iran, but it seems like right now they're willing to more or less be silent and see where it goes. I think it's, it's interesting that you, you brought up Ryan. It's Bill Brennan from start. The, the two-level game, right? Communicating both to your audience at home and your con- and then constituencies abroad. Um, but at least there is a two-level game going on. At least there is an attempt at communication. And you can't compromise internationally unless you start communicating internationally. And, and so if, if nothing else, it's a step towards that end state, even if it won't wind up at that end state. I think that's the only way you have to consider this is at least a step in the right direction. Yeah, I, I, I think it's it's very positive. You know, I I want to be cynical about it. You know, that's my inclination is to sort of see what's not happening and what possibly could go wrong down the road. But I think, you know, you have to you have to give this process an opportunity to unfold. You know, and I think right now it's it's fruitful and there's no reason we shouldn't be talking to Iran at a high level. There's no reason we shouldn't be engaging at the highest levels with Iran, even if we dislike Iran, even if we want to go to war with Iran, we, we should still be engaging with them. So I think if this gets sort of the engagement at higher levels, even if it just gets that started, I think that'll be a positive step. So, so Afshan, this, this is Brian, I, you know, I don't disagree with that engagement. Good. But, but the... Because <laughs> <laughs> when I'm just with Afshan, he gets angry. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the cynic in me says... 
you know, at the same time that there is this outreach from Iran, Iran is uh, behaving in not, this, not directly confrontational manner to the United States, but certainly advancing its own interests in Iraq, in Syria, in a way that is opposed to the United States. And some of this rhetoric maybe is just a way to make sure that tension doesn't overheat too much, right? It's just a tactical effort. Yeah. I mean, is that a possibility, or I mean, what's your take? Yeah, I think. I think it's a possibility, yeah. and it could be a consideration, let's say, from the hardliners yeah. to sort of get the the uh, attention away from Syria, at least. Yeah. But, I mean, there's no gain around it. I mean, Iran is involved in a proxy war against Saudi Arabia, Qatar, to a lesser extent the EU, Turkey, and the United States, and Syria. I mean, right. this is a horrible time to start sort of peace <laughs> engagement. Um, and there's no sense that Iran is in any way going to back down from its efforts in Syria. Yeah. On the other hand, sort of after the sort of uh, detente between Putin and Obama over the, the chemical weapons issue, suddenly Iran's position in Syria seems much more credible and legitimate than it did before. It's no longer funding this murderous regime, it's supporting its ally the same as Russia, you know, and going to help in a constructive way to get rid of its chemical weapons and something like that. So. I think there's space for Iran to to have it both ways right now because I don't think we're willing to really engage Iran on the Syria issue. Mm -hmm. I think we're we're leaving it alone. We may be doing whatever we're doing with support of uh, the rebels, and I think if we wanted to support them, this would be a good time, uh, at least uh, in their efforts in fighting Al Qaeda. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, so the rebels that are not Al Qaeda. The rebels yeah. that are not Al Qaeda. <laughs> that's right. Um, but. But yeah, I, I take your point. I, I think this is, you know, I, I think I said after Rouhani was elected, like, how wonderful this guy was elected at really the worst possible time for the United States and Iran to actually sort of make amends and bridge, bridge the gap. Because there's just so much more happening now in the region that we're at odds. It's not just the nuclear program. It's, right. It's everything. Well, that, that was sort of like my, my two favorite lines, and I say it kind of sarcastically, in Rouhani's speech were, um, Iran is the anchor of stability in an otherwise in an ocean of regional instability. And then later he said, per, talking about the U.S., pursuit of expansionist strategies and objectives and attempts to change the regional balance through proxies cannot be camouflaged beyond humanitarian rhetoric. Right. Well, you can you can see Iran's perspective, right? Because yeah. their opinion is we've always been in Syria. We've always been in the Levant. This is our and neighborhood. And we've never said it was yeah, for humanitarian. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you, you upstart, you know, Saudi and Qatar and to a lesser extent, you know, Western powers are coming in, supporting these jihadists. You know, you're, you're, you're doing it under this rubric of, of humanitarianism, but really you're just trying to drive this hyper-Sunni sectarian movement and defeat, you know, an otherwise pious and secular, you know, Assad leader. So, um, you know... Iran certainly sees its positions as legitimate and everybody else's as illegitimate, you know, uh, which is usually sort of vice versa for its enemies. So you can understand, uh, but Iran loves to always turn around these sorts of ironies, you know, against its enemies. This is its rhetorical trick, always. It's like, you accuse us of human rights, you know, problems, look at your human rights problems. You, you accuse us of electoral uh, inefficiencies or injustices, look at the election of Bush. You know, like, yeah. that's, they always do this, and that's sort of their leg to stand on any argument. It's like, oh, okay, you say that, but, you know, you guys do this too. Yeah. Well, and while we're on sort of the subject of Syria, we're going to talk about this later, but there's no reason we can't talk about this now. Brian, you, uh, you wrote this great paper uh, for the Numerica Foundation, what, how many months ago was it, like six months ago? Yeah, we, we published it about six months ago, but it was written mostly last and, year. And it was, on, it was on Syria, and you wrote it with this uh, real smart analyst, um, I think at ran at the time, now somewhere in government, Radha Iyengar, uh, who I think lives in my hood. And, uh, and why don't you explain the argument, and actually why don't you explain the approach that you used uh, in this argument about Syria and whether or not to support the rebels, because I think that's almost as interesting as the conclusion you came to. If I'd known I was going to be on a podcast, I would have reread that. Bit. Yeah. <laughs> but the um, so or read it for the first time. Yeah, read it for the first time, right? <laughs> no, so the uh, you know the the basic concept was we were trying to identify what uh, core interests were and what were um, 
to, to figure out what U.S. policy should actually try to achieve and what um, those ends would look like. Um, and the basic conclusion that we came to um, was that, so we, we went through a process of sort of ranking those ends and ranking sort of likelihood of, of how these things would come out. We came to the conclusion that the most likely outcome was the worst outcome, which is a de facto partition of Syria. If we didn't do anything. If, or just if we no didn't do what. anything, but but even taking into account various actions, right? So we were sort of trying to make, you know, this war, we were making rough judgments about the likelihood of, of various kinds of actions, can, right? Can, sorry, Brian, can you just explain why the partition would be the worst outcome? Yeah, so the justification, the, the explanation That's there... Colby, by the way. Yeah, the, the reason why Drinking I think... Drinking a nice glass of Cabernet. The, the reason why I think de facto partition is the worst outcome is that it allows... Iran to continue to support proxy actors in the Levant, and the specter of continued violence uh, between the Assad regime and rebels, it will allow Al Qaeda to continue to recruit. Um, so the you know the Al Qaeda makes so this, it kind of keeps the wound open. It, it, keep, it keeps the wound open, okay. right? And and you still get the the worst of all worlds on both sides. Al Qaeda still has plenty of space to set up safe havens, which it's doing now. Um, safe havens where it is able to train foreign fighters much more effectively than it was able to do in Iraq, historically. Um, that means those foreign fighters are less likely to be suicide bombers. They're more likely to get small arms training, bomb making training, those kinds of things. And a lot more of them are gonna survive as a result. So you're going to see more bleed out. I and mean, we've seen very minimal bleed out from Iraq in terms of foreign fighters. That's not gonna be the case in Syria I don't think, because not only because the numbers are so much higher, but because the activities that those foreign fighters are engaged in are not so self-destructive, right? Um, and I think that when you have an environment where there's this partition, the Iranians can still fly stuff in to Damascus. Um, they can still fly stuff in and support Hezbollah. And Al-Qaeda has this wound that they can leech off of. And, that wound is the what Al-Qaeda in Iraq, now the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant and, and Jabhat al-Nusra, um, those wounds are what they survive off of when things get hard, right? So after the awakening in Iraq, uh, they were able to survive basically in Mosul by playing on the continuing tension between Arabs and Kurds in, in northern Iraq. Um, and the continued wound in in Syria, I think they're they're going to continue to see. What what the, the the one upside there is that you're starting to see early signs that these that ISIL, the Islamic State of Iraq in the Levant, um, is trying to establish governance in various places, and that's bad because it means they can train, it means they can do those things. But in doing that, they're going to be less likely to actually be taken on an Assad, and they're going to and that's going to be a source of friction with the FSA and even with Japan. I feel like a lot of the predictions you made in that report have sort of come true. Um, and I wonder if it's sort of too little too late for us to follow through on your recommendations, which were to provide some sort of armed support to the opposition. But I feel like yeah. Rich was trying to get at something is that uh, what, what do you think is the worst option for the U.S.? Is that a bad option for the U.S., Bridge? The, the partition? Yeah. I mean, it seems to me that, and we, we had a debate about this a couple months ago that yeah. uh, Will McCants and others participated in. I mean, presumptively, it seems to me that partition effective partition might not be the worst option in the sense that, you know, I think there's a lot of feelings, uh, you know, here, but also among our allies and partners in the region, Israel, Turkey, and, and elsewhere, that a situation in which there's sort of a bleeding effect, I mean, not to be callous, but, uh, um, you know, Iran and its sort of associates in, in the Assad crowd, um, uh, uh, you know, will sort of balance off the, 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 the Sunni radicals and they, they will kind of consume each other's energies and that as long as they're consumed with with um, each other you know fighting each other that, that they will sort of check each other now I mean the point that, that I think Brian's making and Wilma Kantz I think makes as well is you know there, there's a sort of an, an expansionary effect where you know you kind of catalyze um, you know violent terrorist activity and that, that's a serious consideration but I mean looked at it from a kind of a little bit of a, you know, maybe excessively cold-eyed perspective, but I think one that we might take is kind of, you know, I, it's not clear to me that we want either side to decisively win, given the current constitution of the rebel forces. I mean, it, the, the, you know, my, my feeling is sort of in these kinds of situations, especially in which there's a civil war, it's the guys in the leather jackets who tend to prevail, and, you know, mm -hmm. that's not the sort of moderate, 
you know, liberal sort of opposition that we, we obviously would feel comfortable with, but it might be the guys who are from, from Al-Qaeda and, and associated sort of Sunni extremist groups, and that's, that's what I worry about. And so when I think about the Syria kind of contingency, I think, well, you know, given the risks and the sort of, the, sort of <coughs> the responsibilities that we'd be taking on if we intervened, maybe, maybe the least bad option right now is to let things, uh, uh, you know, kind of continue, um, you know, and, and provide humanitarian aid and maybe support to certain rebel groups, but, mm -hmm. but not to get too involved because the situation might not be intolerable for us. Bill, your, your center uh, startup at University of Maryland has done a lot of research on pretty much anything that you could possibly relate to terrorism, <laughs> but including a lot of stuff on foreign fighters and uh, the impact of these conflicts on the larger jihadist movement. I mean, what, what have you guys found that might pertain to this discussion? Well, we, t we tend to focus a lot on non-state actors, and in some ways that limits um, the utility of some of our analysis, um, because I think that state-sponsored terrorism is such a huge part of this discussion. And actually, just to think about this for a second, I mean, a few weeks ago, Assad basically, he didn't even hide behind the idea that if there was an, uh, a U.S. unilateral action, there would be a terrorist response. And when we, we all talk about the definition of terrorism, we, we often talk about the, the threat of violence or the use of violence. I mean, he threatened terrorist violence in, in order to deter U.S. aggression. It was over the top, you know, overt. He, he didn't shy away from it at all. Um, those kinds of uh, factors, I think, play very heavily into any discussion about Syria or Iran, clearly either whether it's Iran, Iran's nuclear program or Syria's chemical weapons, but I think one of the more important things that came out of the last few weeks with respect to Syria is the willingness to overtly threaten the use of terrorist violence by a, a, a state. Mm -hmm. um, and no one's, I mean, there was no reaction to that. We were so, so caught up about the conversation regarding chemical weapons, and that being the red line, that the, the leader of a nation state threatened terrorism and, and no one mentioned a red line. No one even picked, you know, it didn't, no one seemed to obsess about that. So. Um, I think that's actually a different kind of, of terrorism and, and something that is, is um, I don't know that, that my organization is the best place to, to analyze right now because we look so much at non-state actors. But there's another weird form of deterrence that I see in the Assad regime right now, which is the if we fall apart, Al-Qaeda will get our chemical weapons, you know, which does restrain us, I think, from applying pressure on the Assad regime is, is you know, failure is worse, and that's that's pretty new. I I can't think of another instance where we get that. I mean, maybe I'm. I mean, I, I it's new that Assad's making that argument. Right. I, I think yeah. I think that argument's sort of been in yeah. in town, you know, uh, for quite some time. I, I would just suggest that. What's that large argument? If you think I'm an asshole, wait till you see the guys that I've been kidnapped. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's it's yeah. it's really hard to say, like, you know, if to put it in in crude. Perhaps not accurate terms, you know. Let's it's DC's favorite. Let's so. let's <laughs> defeat Iran's friend in order to empower Al Qaeda. You know, it's it's kind of an odd trade-off and one that would be supremely ironic for the United States to get involved in, right? But I think you know, uh, going back to to this issue of ISIS and the FSA, sort of the, the secular groups fighting. Um, gets to the crux of the, of, the, of the problem with the rebels, and that is that the majority of the money, the majority of the arms, and the most effective fighters have been jihadists, and the money has come from the Gulf uh, by private money. Um, and whatever state funds that are coming from Qatar and Saudi and whoever else are flowing to groups that aren't able to utilize it, aren't able to cultivate it, uh, or are just not getting enough of it in order to compete with the jihadists. And it seems to me that right now you're seeing ISIS really exert control over areas, and they are fighting the FSA openly. They are and fighting the Kurds, the Kurds yeah, openly. The Kurds, yeah. They're even fighting Afar al-Sham, you know, this other sort of right. Salafi group openly. This is, an, this is a time when those states that support the rebels could sort of try to turn the tables on the jihadists by saying, here is a buttload of weapons. Here is all the game-changing crap that you want. You know, if you're going to fight Al-Qaeda, go ahead. It may not do anything to Assad, but in Aleppo, but in can the we north, make them fight Al Qaeda instead of the? They're fi they're fighting Al Qaeda regardless. Yeah, they, don't they don't have a choice. So if nothing else, it would. One it would, tends to shoot back. Yeah, 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 right. yeah. <laughs> but at both at everyone that's shooting at you, and it's also Assad that's shooting. Well, but here's the thing. Here's the thing that I think we we've 
we've missed is that we've we've tended to analyze the Syrian conflict at a like operational military level, and it strikes me that the biggest threat to Assad from the beginning was defection within the ranks. Right, that's how dictators fall: is the military turns on them. Right, the presence of Al Qaeda within the opposition hurt the Assad regime militarily, but it strengthened him politically in terms of entrenching the support of his, of his military. Because he could make the case plausibly to those Alawite officers and Christian officers, look, those jihadis, they're going to come kill you, whether you're fighting for me, but just because of what you believe and who you are and who your kids are. And, and so the elements in the Gulf that have supported Al-Qaeda because they wanted to get rid of Assad, I think were shooting themselves in the foot, ultimately. Um, because they actually missed the best chance to get rid of him, which was to find ways to buy off his own military. And we you know, we just moved way too late to, yeah, to make that play. It, on that, mean, it was a demographic problem from the beginning. Yeah, that right. way. On that really good point, we're going to end the discussion on Syria for now, at least. And, you know, the, the attack in Nairobi is another is another big issue in the news this week. Um, I don't know if anyone, I mean, we all know what, we all know what happened, and I think everyone listening to this podcast knows what happened. But I think what's, what, an interesting point is there was also a church bombing in Pakistan where a larger number of people were killed, but a far, it's gotten far, much less media attention. There's actually been a lot of violence against churches uh, across the Muslim world. You know, you've seen, we've been seeing it in Iraq for years. Um, we're now seeing it in Syria. We've certainly been seeing it in Egypt. Even it was even aggravated more so as Morsi was being pushed from office, um, and we've been seeing it in Pakistan. But it hasn't gotten a lot of attention. The president's mentioned it a few times in speeches, but it just hasn't gotten a lot of media attention. And I'm really curious as to why you think that is. Well, I mean, I would just suggest right off the bat that we are numb to violence in South Asia, just especially Pakistan. We're numb to it in Iraq. Uh, we're growing numb to it in Egypt. Um, so I think, you know, the casual observer just doesn't know, you know, what, what to think is a big deal. But aside from that, I, w- I would suggest just a little bit that it's, that, you know, it's not just attacks on churches, which is certainly happening and problematic, but I think it's, it's a larger problem of attacks on minorities, religious minorities in general. And it includes Christians in Egypt and, and Pakistan. It also includes Shia in Pakistan. Uh, it includes, you know, Shia in, in Bahrain and, and Saudi Arabia, you know, from, from state levels. But I think what you are seeing now, and it's an outgrowth of Iraq, the civil war in Iraq, it's an outgrowth of Syria and what's going on there, and the Arab Spring more generally, is this growing communalism and sectarianism that's sort of, you know, metastasizing within the Islamic world, or at least within the greater Middle East and South Asia, that uh, is provoking this violence. But If I can just put a fine point on the number of, like, the number of attacks in Pakistan versus Kenya, so... Bill's uh, got his phone out. He's yeah, just, things, right? No, actually, no, he just knows these Bill's things. Cheating. Yeah, Bill's <laughs> cheating. I'm actually uh, <laughs> referencing a background report we're about to release uh, that'll provide some information on, uh, to give context to this attack. So this is Arabia. exclusive to War on the Rocks. This, this is. Um, between 1970 and 2012, there have been more than uh, 250 terrorist attacks in Kenya. 250, and they've killed about 1,000 people. Right. How many people have died in Pakistan every year since 9-11? Right. Right. They've had a 9-11 every year in the last five or six years in terms of number of fatalities. And so the, the level of carnage is just not even close. Um, Shabab is a slightly different story. It's a very active uh, terrorist organization since its splinter from the ICU in 2007. It's carried out 550 terrorist attacks, killing more than 1,600 and wounding more than 2,100. So a very hyperactive organization that is now c- conducting out-of-area operations in Kenya, a place that has had much less terrorism historically, and the terrorism that it has has been tied often to multi-party elections and these sorts of things. So in some ways this is a novel use of violence in, in Nairobi, uh, not in every way, but in some ways, uh, whereas in Pakistan, like you said, we're, we're quite numb. Well, I think uh, I, you know, my, a good friend of mine, Alexander Hitchens, who some of you know, he's over at ICSR in London. And he actually went to Eastleigh, the big Somali slum in Nairobi, uh, some months ago and, and did some field research there. And he came back and we had a discussion about this. And he says, there's going to be a big attack in Nairobi. It's just a matter of when. Like, it, all the factors are there. There's already low-level attacks against the police. This is a big recruiting area for them. Uh, it's going to happen. And, uh, and one wonders, did the U.S. pay enough attention to it? Did it matter? 
Uh, well, can I <coughs> weigh in on that? Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think there was a, a, a multiple, I mean, failure on multiple levels, but the failures with the Kenyans primarily. I mean, we've been spending, ten, we've spent tens of millions of dollars on counterterrorism assistance to the Kenyans since uh, 1998, since the embassy um, bombing there. And um, I mean, my sense of the situation is there, there, there was a logic to the... Um, are you signaling another round? Keep talking. Keep, keep talking. talking. <laughs> you know, I think there were two things going on to explain why the Kenyans didn't do more to. Uh, is the thing still running? Yeah. 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 Great. Um, <laughs> I mean, the Kenyans had the certainly knew that Shabab had extended its networks in inside uh, Kenya. There were Kenyans being recruited by Shabab. There were. Uh, members of the Somali diaspora who were relocating to uh, uh, Kenya, right? We've spent, um, as we mentioned before, you know, tens of millions on all kinds of things, counterterrorism assistance, border control. I'm sure the intelligence services have been given lots of assistance. Um, you know, the performance of the security forces in the last four days, you know, hasn't been great, but they've got some capacity and they've got some capability. They just the Kenyans did not have the will to attack these networks, and partly I think they're taking their cues from us, right? Because if it doesn't happen in the Middle East, and if it's not clearly Al-Qaeda, I mean, Shabab being a subset, having a relationship, being an affiliate, you all have your, you all have your terms. It's just not a priority. I mean, we, we've, I think they sort of absorbed that uh, by osmosis, right? That, that uh, it, we weren't screaming at them to crack down on the Shabab. Um, they had their own reasons, one of which is to keep sort of intercommunal tensions down. They, they're, the, the, the Kenyan government is very conscious of the fact that, you know, the, 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 the Christian and Muslim uh, tensions there are high. They've been so for a long time. A big crackdown on what's you know, perceived as an anti-Muslim crackdown <clears throat> wouldn't be good um, politically. But the other thing I'd say is... Uh, a, a colleague of mine makes the argument about the charcoal trade, and he said that there are mm -hmm. plenty of people in the, uh, in the higher levels, higher reaches of the Kenyan government who are making money off a uh, Shabab, deeply Shabab-influenced charcoal trade in Somalia. And I was like, well, is it really a lot of money? And he said, well, $40, $50 million a year yeah. going into people's pockets in, in Kenya. So there were, there were various uh, economic and political incentives for them not to crack down on Shabab, and certainly we considered Shabab to be a second-order priority. Yeah. I think there's a, it was an interesting stalemate in, in both directions, meaning that the, for Shabab, attacking in Kenya is a bad idea because it's going to really damage the Somali diaspora in Eastley, um, and it's going to affect a lot of their sort of fundraising and sustainability operations that they might conduct in a place like Nairobi in order to sustain the movement in Somalia. But is the calculation to radicalize that population by inciting a response? I mean, sort of the classic... Well, well just to, to yeah. finish with that, from the other side, if Kenya were to go on the offense against networks, uh, Shabab networks in Eastleigh, they would be antagonizing Shabab in order mm -hmm. you know, to conduct that attack. So I think it was a, ch a game of chicken to see who was going to sort of change the status quo first and some faction within Shabab changed the status quo, and now we'll see who, what, what faction, and why. Well, and it, and, it, and it's fascinating. I mean, we haven't really talked about the attack on the sort of the tactical level, but here is here here is the uh, I don't know. Can we call it a Fedayeen style attack? I mean, yeah, or a Bombay style, Mumbai style attack, yeah. right? With apparently without the suicide yeah. um, dimension to it. Uh, and this is, you know, something that, that, that terrorism analysts have worried about for a long time. It's, you know, our relentless focus on WMD. Thank God that seems to, you know, w, terrorist use of WMD seems to have gone by the wayside Syria aside. But, you know, these, these firearms attacks, I mean, they've demonstrated they can, they can generate, I uh, wouldn't say massive casualties, but absolutely substantial casualties without suicide attacks. Yep. Requires training and, and discipline, which they seem to have. But well, they're playing firearms in East Africa. <laughs> plenty of firearms, plenty of grenades, plenty of opportunity. I guess my other question is like, why hasn't this happened before? Well, and, a, are we yeah. worried domestically? I hate to bring things back to the United States itself, but to discuss the United States. I mean, are we? Do we need to be more alert to these uh, 
these styles of attacks, I mean, from a sort of homeland security perspective. Well, at I, first, I don't have an answer to that. At the first reports coming out of the uh, Navy Yard shooting said that it was three people right. going around shooting mm -hmm. each other. And so we found out it was only one guy. You know, initial reports are often wrong, but that's exactly the sort of thing we'd be worried about. And given the uh, easy access to guns in this country, it certainly wouldn't be... Apparently just a shotgun, too. Yeah, just which, which Joe Biden told, told us we should buy. Yeah. Yeah. Just buy a shotgun right. and you shoot him through the door. And, you know. He was born in Pennsylvania. So yeah. But, uh, hard scrabble. But, uh, no, I think, uh, but and what's more important about these small arms attacks isn't, isn't how many people, isn't how many people they, they kill, it's how long they hold the world's attention, hold, hold the world's attention, because these are communicative attacks. Terrorism is about communication, and this went on for four days. I mean, is it officially over yet in Nairobi? I mean, I know I as, of, so. as of this morning, it was still going on. I mean, they've been wrapping up for three of those four <laughs> yeah, days, right? And in Mumbai, <laughs> Ignore the gunshots and the smoke in the background. And Mumbai, it, it, it took days. And, and you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of you saw the photos. The New York Times star star photographer happened to be right nearby, which is fairly remarkable in and of itself. Um, before we go back to uh, international politics, I'm going to spring a topic on on you guys, because I think this is actually a very suitable audience for this. We all know about um, the situation with uh, Elizabeth Obagi. She was the analyst at the Institute for Study of War, who turned out was uh, being less than honest about her uh, having a PhD, which she didn't have. Uh, and she said she had one from Georgetown. I don't personally know her. I don't know if anyone in this room does. It doesn't really matter. But it's raised a lot of really interesting questions. I don't want to talk about her so much, but the, what it raises is that um, People put a lot of credibility in what quote-unquote experts go on TV and say and go and say in these reports, and we're all sort of involved in one extent or another in the, in the think tank industry, for lack of a better word, which is always a lot. People assume it's a lot more lucrative than it is, but I do think it's, I think it is a very a powerful industry, and it's certainly an influential one. It shapes opinions, and we're, we're considered thought leaders, uh, and sometimes people uh, overestimate their credentials, and I think this is a dramatic case of that, and some people have gone on to say that the industry should take a harder look at itself and who we're calling experts and should uh, and background checks and should we peer review our work and uh, I mean, what, I'm curious to hear all your thoughts on this. I, I, sorry, I got to weigh in immediately. Yeah. You know what we need? We need regular net assessments. Okay, what were the predictions going back? I mean, economists are kind of subjected to this, but not so much, you know, policy experts. Okay, let's go back and, you know, what did you say two years ago about the price of oil? What did you say about Middle East? What did you say about Japan? What did you say? Let's go and, you know, do a relentless uh, ranking of, let's say, the top 50 predictions. Nice article for foreign policy, don't you think? And say, or war on the rocks. Yeah, war on the rocks. <laughs> foreign <laughs> policy. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> Uh, like an and Angie's List rating? Uh, Angie's, yeah. list. <laughs> Angie's List, or, you know, uh, let, let's do kind of a yesterday and today and see yeah. see how see how the biggies, the ones who really try to predict. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. And, and, and put that kind of uh, discipline in, because I think you can basically say any, you can say any kind of bullshit, right. but no one ever goes back and says, do you realize that, that, that John at whatever said this and was very confident in his prediction that why would happen uh i don't think anyone's i mean rarely held to account well that's uh, why it's remarkable to me and not to pick on one person but i don't know him so i'm going to and mm -hmm. he's outside of my camp but everything bill crystal <laughs> says has been wrong for like 20 years uh every prediction he's been made picking sarah palin as the running mate which he was actually very closely involved in doing like everything every prediction he's made about international politics and the politics of the party have been disastrous Yet he's still a very influential person. So I think even if you pointed out these things, these are people that people listen to them because those people will still go on and say, "Well, we know each other. We've done business together. I'm responsible for a grant you're getting." People are these people are still going to get on TV. But, but I think it's the, the the disinfectant, the sunshine disinfectant. Yeah, yeah, I think that could have an effect. This is a sunshine-free zone. I think and this comes from you know Bill and I both worked together up at West Point and and, and taught the Department of Social Sciences there. And, and they do a lot of thinking about what it means for these young cadets to become officers in a profession, right? One of the things they talk about is self-policing, right? Is that the profession itself has to police, you know, bad actors. And so we don't really do that. I mean, we sort of have these arguments, but the arguments themselves become part of a reputation-building process, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, people make their careers 
yelling at Bill Crystal, right? And, <laughs> uh, right, and, and you get you know folks, you know, I don't know who they are, but writing for Slate or whatever, and it's useful to them to have a Bill Crystal foil rather than to actually sort of bend towards some sort of factual basis, right? But I think there's something to be learned from that that we. You know, I don't know if you need a bar exam or something to become a think tanker, but Everyone, you know, that, there, 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 we've seen how effective that is. Yeah, right. <laughs> but you could well, say I, that you need a PhD, right, to bring it back to Elizabeth O'Baggy. I mean, that's the idea. I would is disagree. Not everyone in this room has a PhD. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm not saying that because I have a PhD, but I do. Uh, <laughs> no, but I, I think there's a reason why she inflated her, her credentials, right? If you don't have a long track record of... Mm -hmm. of uh, of output, it, it doesn't have to be good or bad. It just has to be there. Well, but um, some of it wasn't that good. Yeah. Well, that, well yeah. That I mean, there are a lot of questions about. It. I mean, everyone says ISW's reporting was great and it shouldn't be, right. shouldn't be looked at. But was it actually great? Well, that's the that's the question. I mean, yeah. right? She may have. Well, she did overstate her credentials, and that's 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 obviously wrong. I don't know about the substance of what she said. I mean, is that open to because? It seems like very few sort of think, you know policy analyst researchers have been traipsing around Syria to do this kind of analysis. Uh -huh. I don't. I don't know. I have. I have yeah, she deserves really, a lot of credit yeah, for putting yeah, herself yeah. on the ground. Right? I, I think. And did she? Is her analysis useful? Is it helpful? Is it all called into question now because she's apparently her, her ethics are called into question. So how can we? I mean, and it's definitely not falsifiable. Like we can't go back and check her sources. So. Right. I think it, I think yeah. and when you're writing when you're writing an op-ed, you know, it your sources aren't checked, right? It rests on yeah. your reputation, right? Mm -hmm. And the assertions. It, that you but make. I mean, you know, the the fact of the matter is nobody gets dinged for being wrong, and nobody gets rewarded for being right. I mean, nobody's hiring people because they said, you know, the last few papers that you produced really turned out to be correct. Yeah. Because we don't prognosticate, we just pontificate, and you know. Nobody's going. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't just write that line, but <laughs> it was good. Though. Yeah, yeah, thanks. <laughs> you know, but but nobody's hiring on those credentials. They hire you based yeah. on your reputation. Your reputation isn't about the quality of the work. It's about the reception of the work, right? And if people think that you are important enough in in whatever realm that you are, you get noticed. And if they don't think you're important, regardless of the quality of your work, right. you know that they're not going to pay you any mind. I think that's a little cynical. Really? I, mean, I think, that's a I, I think and do you know a perfect example of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of course it's Well, I think, we're, I think we're definitely sort of members of an informal guilt, and I think what Brian said is important, is not only do we not self-police, but we consider it bad form. When someone comes out and makes a bold prediction, uh, you know, the, someone at Big Think Tank A comes out and says, he writes this big paper on this, something that they've never written about before and they have no subject matter expertise on, who, you know, we all probably know these, these people, and so we don't want to call them out because maybe we're friends with them, maybe we're going to see them at the next conference, um, maybe we have drinks with them occasionally or we have similar friends, but, or we work at the same think tank. And I think there's just so many incentives against self-policing. Yeah, and that's a problem. But there, but there are multiple mechanisms of yes. policing, right? I mean, in the sense that, and, and even if people are keep sending, I mean, I agree, I agree with you that there are a lot of egregious examples of people who, you know, were going to be greeted with garlands of flowers, and and you know the children are going to you know carry us and give ask for chocolates and all that, who are, who are gross, grotesquely wrong, and should be ashamed for the you know for mm -hmm. the variety of their existences. But um, you know. For, there is a discounting effect, right? Where there are people, you know, for every neoconservative, there is a salon or a sure. slate where people are calling them out, and people kind of tribalize. So there's, so there's, you know, obviously we all have our own publications and yeah. But I mean, yeah. you know, it's not. I actually, I, I mean, just to maybe to be, just to play the the you know the the, the skeptic a little bit. I mean, I actually I, I do like the sort of the flexibility and the adaptability of the Amer of the American think tank system in the sense that that I mean Obagi I don't know the story that well but I mean she you know plagiarized and falsified so that and I think you're exactly right Ryan that that calls everything into question that she said because so much of what we do is not falsifiable mm -hmm. but you know I think it's good that somebody can not ha I mean obviously we should give a presumption of um, you know, deference or more respect to somebody who's got an established track record. But it shouldn't be hard and fast. And if somebody's able to get, you know, good information and, and, and couches it appropriately and, 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 and you know, is caution, cautionary about it or whatever, um, then, then I think we should, you know, I think that's good. I don't think there should be too much structure because I don't think, right. I don't think <clears throat> if we build some 
ornate bar exam or whatever that right. it would that it would and actually and how would you even build that? Yeah, how, and sometimes the PhDs are to, wrong, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. all the time. Can I add one more thing about this think tank? Yeah, please do. This is this is Bill Rosen now. Who's who's who? After this is going to kick off. What are we drinking? What are we drinking? Uh, I'm drinking, Adam's, no, no, no. as my grandfather called it, Adam's Ale, <laughs> pure water, uh, in a martini glass. Um, one of the things I find insidious is the um, use by um, said, military commanders. Uh, the way they've actually um, been very subtle and I think very clever in using these think tank representatives to essentially message... Right. A U.S. or Western audience, and and it was certainly true in Iraq. I saw it firsthand in Iraq, where various. Um, well, you were at the Rand Insurgency Board, or uh, no, no. Well, I was, I was, I was working at uh, at, at one map at the time, and oh, okay. an interesting experience. Mm -hmm. um, but where you know a plane load of um, Washington glitterati, um, they're going nameless. I don't know why at this stage, but. <laughs> It's the same crowd, but that, but it's interesting that none of us want to say any names, right? It, it was the same crowd that 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 uh, that um, McChrystal yeah. and others used in in Afghanistan to to essentially message, and and I think that 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 to me is much more pernicious. The idea yeah. that yeah. and I don't care about corporations buying people; it doesn't doesn't matter to me. I'm not interested in that. But actually, when you have the government um, through through a combination of Flattery! Wow, who doesn't want to get a call from the you know senior military commander, whatever? For advice, trip over to the field to see uh, what's going on, flying around to see the troops, and and then of course writing about it compulsively as all of the think tank think tank people do. I, I don't know. I've never quite heard that called out. Yeah, yeah. And and, and but that's and, a widely shared sentiment. But but but, but, it's, it, it, but so it seems to be it seems to also be the phenomenon seems to be there. Yeah. It, and it, it's sort of it's sort of Monday morning quarterback at this point. But I mean, not not to criticize you. You're exactly right. But even if they do come out and say we were wrong, does it? So Steve Biddle um, was one of those people. Um, but he also brought that up at uh, ISA a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. the International Society Association conference. He said, you know, he, he was talking, giving a presentation about um, doing field research for contemporary military history, essentially. And at the end of his presentation, he said, I think we really need to look at how uh, military commanders have used these study groups, these advisory groups, to basically be op-ed committees. And, you know, mm -hmm. to his credit, he said that. And this is an open conference, and this was this was on the record. And, uh, but it still happened, and I don't. I don't see the incentives in our in our profession now. You know, you've seen the journalism community do a lot of introspection, picked to the New York Times about how the Iraq War was sold. I don't think we've seen that in our community. Well, I, I think our community no. is far less troubled about it. Yeah. Um, well, well there, I mean, there's an even well, there's another version of that, which is access to foreign governments too, right? I mean, there was a trip in 2010 where Gaddafi basically brought in a bunch of Washington mm -hmm. think tankers well, gave and, them, and gave them access. A couple of whom we know. Yeah. And, right, and, you know, and they came back and wrote about it, but that, you know, and I think in that environment you don't have, those think tankers didn't have the same incentive to sort of write the party line, yeah, yeah. but um, but there's no doubt that it's an attempt to influence by a foreign government, you know, presumably influential thinkers in Washington. Yeah. I think too. There's, you know, there's a distinction to be made between those think tankers that are driving a particular ideology and those that are trying to do more or less objective work. You know, and I think yeah. those that do more or less objective work really do self police in a way. But I think the people that are doing the more ideological work also often think they're doing the more objective. I think it's hard to draw that line. Yeah. And what about the just the non think tankers? Because they, you know, as much as this is a problem within within the think tank community. The larger problem is that you have a bunch of folks influencing the national debate about critical national security and foreign policy issues that are essentially just political hacks. Right. Right? And, and they're just, they're <laughs> strategists, right? They're, they're, they're Democratic or Republican strategists, right? And they just have a, they just have a sheet of, of talking points. You know, and frankly, I'd rather have one of, you know, a, a think tank hack who's actually informed about the issues Making well, it's an also, ideological argument. It's, like, it's, it's, it's a freedom. Of, I think that's right. It's a freedom. Of, it's sort of I don't know. It's sort of a freedom of speech point, right? Which is that, like, yeah, there are. A lot, I mean, everybody has you know competing pressures, and they go on trips and whatever. You know, 
but the point is not just self-policing, but but there's policing by the community at large, and hopefully there are incentives to call people out, and that's what we, you know, I mean, we were talking to Ryan about, about maybe this is a, a segue, but but about the, the drift towards against some of the interventionist, uh, you know, uh, sort of push of people like Crystal and stuff like that, and, you know, partially, presumably that's a result of the, you know, calling out of people uh, yeah. over the last 10 years, right? I mean, let, let, let's definitely segue into that, but first let's, yeah. let's talk about what we're all drinking, and... Uh, Bill's always got my favorite answer, so. Uh, well, Bill Rose now, not it's, it's our own. It's our own beloved uh, Plymouth Gin Martini. Um, hopefully, it'll be stocked more widely uh, around the world or mm-hmm. in Washington. But uh, it certainly is here at the lovely Jefferson Hotel. At the Jefferson Hotel, and they do a brilliant job making the dry Plymouth Martini. So, uh, thank you very much for that. Uh, I'm having a, uh, a Cabernet now. I started out with a Niebolo, which I some Italian wine, but it's uh, it's it's nice. It's, it's a little more muted than this, what I started out with. So. All right. You had a different something else before? Yeah, yeah. It was a much fruitier uh-huh. red wine. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, are you a bit of a wine? Uh, I am uh, not really, but I, I enjoy it. So. All right. Well, I'm I'm drinking Jameson, which I get heaps of abuse for, uh, at, not least from Bill Braniff here, who alerted me to a much better. Yeah, so whiskey the, that I should be drinking. The right answer is Powers. Uh, Powers Gold Label, the cheap one, not the expensive one. It's cheap. It's fantastic. It's got the higher, highest ratio of pot still mixed into the uh, column still. It's by Middleton. So the people who red who make Red Breast, it's fantastic. Sold. Done. Done. That's not what I'm drinking. I'm, drinking, I'm drinking a beer. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Uh, I'm drinking a Kentucky Salty Dog, which is. Bourbon, bourbon, something else. I don't know. It's good. Uh, <laughs> and uh, what are you drinking, Ashton? Uh, Fever Tree Club Soda with lime. Do you have any thoughts on Fever Tree? Is it, is it brand? I, I love like it. I love Fever Tree products in general. Yeah. What is what? It's a brand. Okay. <laughs> it, it, it's a um, it's a mixer. Um, they source all this stuff. You know, places like Kenya. It's got real sugar in it. Uh, if you mm. have tonic water, delicious. Bill Rose, now, if you want to know about life, just kind of in general. Yeah, in yeah but I can't monetize any of that. I know. Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually considering an expert on when life. I when I make money one day, I'm going to hire Bill Rose now as my life consultant. I think that's <laughs> just a good consultant. <laughs> <a life laughs> yeah. Wow. Sort of Renaissance. <laughs> I'll start whenever. Yeah. So let me know. So let's let's <laughs> let's move back to so President Obama gave the speech to the UN, and it actually I I it was a lot better than I thought it was going to be. I still didn't love it, but it was a lot better than I thought it was going to be because he came out and uh, he said, we have core interests uh, that we are willing to use force for in the Middle East. And one is the protection of allies, um, stopping WMD. We're not going to tolerate anyone developing WMD capability. And you see he was looking over at Iran and Syria when he said that, I'm sure. Um, stopping terrorism before it reaches the American homeland, before it reaches American targets, and maintaining the free flow of oil out to the region, to the rest of the world. And uh, he went on to say, you know, subsidiary interests, not core interests. Doesn't mean they're not important, they're just not core interests, are spreading democracy. And I think we all sort of know that as true. It, certainly you could look at our behavior and say, certainly during this administration, say obviously that's been the case. Um, because we haven't taken a big stand. For example, when the Egyptian military launched not a coup against uh, <laughs> President Mohamed Morsi. But um, it's refreshing to actually hear a president say that. And it, it shouldn't be, but it is, because it yeah. just hasn't been said for so long. But do you think this is part of a larger President Obama uh, realist vision, or do you think he's sort of tacking to the concerns of the American public? I know we were talking about this earlier, Bridge. Yeah. No, it's a really interesting question, and it's, it's part of this sort of weird uh, kind of sort of counterintuitive, off-kilter sort of ideological kind of space that we've been in for the last 10 or 15 years, where actually Obama's speech is sort of strangely resonant, uh, particularly to sort of realist, or in some sense, small-c conservative, at least on the international agenda. I mean, my, my perception of the president is he's quite progressive on domestic issues, but on, on, the, on the international sphere, he's, he's sort of a pragmatist. It seems partially because he's sort of uninterested in it, or doesn't want it to disturb his domestic agenda, but maybe that's being uncharitable. But I mean, what he says is, you know, broadly speaking, I think that, yeah, I mean, it, maybe it's motivated by a, a, an assessment of the tenor or the sort of the, the, the feelings of the of the populace, which were clearly manifested in the reaction to Syria uh, proposal for intervention. And, uh, you know, I, for one, 
am encouraged not by a sort of an isolationism, but by a more measured uh, internationalism. I mean, I, I worry that we could go too far, you know, the sort of Paulite, but I think, you know, we have some distance to go before we get there, but I think if we if we kind of start to prioritize and say, not just, you know, these are our interests, but also what is it that we can actually effectively or successfully do? I mean, I think in the, in the, in the, in the Syria context, it was encouraging to see a lot of Republicans say, you know, not only uh, this isn't our problem, which would be sort of an isolationist reflexive response, but also what does this accomplish? What's the, you know, how does this develop? What's the end, end point? You know, that's a kind of a level of sort of, strategic thinking and analysis that was woefully absent at some periods in the last 10 or 15 years. I, I felt that um, Bill Braniff, he, he, his speech was pragmatic, but I actually think that most of his foreign policy speeches are quite pragmatic or grounded in pragmatism. Um, and, and I th <clears throat> I think that it's, it's because he inherited uh, a couple of wars in a part of the world where there an idealistic answer doesn't necessarily result, you know, result in a positive outcome. Um, you manage the Middle East, you manage South Asia as the United States government, you don't fix, you don't solve these issues. And I think there's just a recognition that if I set the goal to solve or fix these issues, I'm going to fail. So it might be, it might be, inter it might be political pragmatism, but no matter what, pragmatism is what bubbles to the surface in his foreign policy speeches. I think out of a recognition of the just the, the complexity and the difficulty of the situation that, that he's both inherited and that continues to come at him that he has to deal with. Well, and also maybe just the limitations of our own power, the limitations of our own resources, the limitations of the will of the American people. And, and, and I think the Republicans are to be given some credit for this. Like, well, they are our elected representatives, and to be tapping into this, this uh, taproot of deep, Deep, powerful, uh, you know, weariness uh, over over these these endless wars. I think that's a, that's a that's a positive thing. But I think you know, reflecting that you know, limits to our own ability to shape those places, right? I mean, and and a recognition that you know, if we're not cultivating these resources, this domestic engine, economic engine, we aren't going to be able to do any of these wonderful things abroad. So but it's also, it's not, it's not as, you know, and I think you're right, Bill, but it's also, and this is not what you're saying, but I'm just kind of trying to spin off it, but it's not, it's not a self-loathing or, or a sort of a glorification of, of our own limitations, but it's saying, you know, there, there are certain things that we, you know, can't realistically, you know, effectuate as we might like, um, you know, in an ideal world, and there, there are, there are trade-offs among the resources and the objectives, the resources we have and the objectives yeah. we want well, to pursue. Yeah, it's strategy. It's, it's strategy, strategy. exactly. Strategy. It's strategy, and that's, and that's, you know, Obama, however imperfectly, was kind of, yeah. was kind of groping towards that. And I think during, the, in many respects, during both the Clinton and the Bush forty-three era, there was an absence of strategy. You know, typified, say, the Charles Krauthammer article on the unipolar moment. I mean, it's kind of like, you know. It was befuddling in some respects because it was sort of the U.S. could act without constraint, without consideration of trade-offs. And now we are, you know, we want to get our economy back. But I mean, you know, my 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 hope, and I, you know, and I think I think this is where the American political spectrum writ large, ho hopefully, is moving, is to say we're moving away from the maximalist in interventionism typified by you know uh, Joe Lieberman or something. But we are not we're not going to some kind of you know. 1930s isolationism. We're going to a, we're going to something that's more. Here's what we need to do. Here's what we can realistically hope for, and we're going to kind of stay in the game, but we're going to be more measured about it. Well, and and, and the, the the 1930s isolationism or the 1920s isolationism, it's a bit of a straw man. It's anyway, a because yeah. we were deeply, you know, we were deeply entrenched yeah. economically in Asia and so on. We also this and, before and, we were a global power. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Exactly. But this is essentially sort of the Goldilocks solution, right? Not too hot, not too cold. But the Goldilocks solution right. is always the solution of politics, right? Because there's no, I mean, there's a famous, it's usually, I think it's ascribed to Churchill, but it's one of those things that people ascribe to Churchill because they don't know who to ascribe it to, but <laughs> its success is never final, right? right. I mean, it was actually, that was me that said that. <laughs> yeah, it was actually, it was, right. it was a great line. Yeah, yeah, exactly, when he, when he, you know, defeated I the told Nazis. Churchill. Good job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's still on my line. Well, and, and, and just one more thing, and I'll shut up. The, 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 you're right, it's not about self-loathing. I mean, right. I'm just thinking back to Nixon and Kissinger. Yeah. They had self-loathing of themselves. Of themselves, <laughs> of course. <laughs> Justifiably. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, Nixon, not Kissinger. Nixon.
I think you, you made an interesting point, the, the unipolar moment where we could act without trade-offs, and I think we thought we could, and that's why Russia is actually being so difficult right now, is because Russia, we were so much, and we so, are still so much stronger than Russia, by the way, I think yeah, it's, often, right. it's, it's often said that we're not, that we're Absolutely. not, Russia is not a pure competitor in any interest of the imagination, but they were even so much less of one in the 90s, and at every point where we could do what Russia really, really, really didn't want us to do in the 90s, yeah. we did that. Exactly and I think we're paying for it now. I agree. Uh, well, and I think we turned a lot of actually Russian liberals off to us, Russian nationalist liberals off to us, including Pushkov, who made that very un unfortunate and stupid, I'll just call it what it is, stupid remark about American exceptionalism in the wake of the uh, Navy Yard shooting. But this is someone who was one of those Russian liberals who really was looking to America in the early 90s, and then we just started crapping all over Russia as much well, as possible. You know, and the problem is, is that we we end up getting into these fights with Russia over essentially small fries, right? Like Georgia, you know, or, or forcing the missiles, you know, uh, e into Eastern Europe. I mean, something that, that we didn't need to do, mm -hmm. uh, something that, that, that didn't help us really in any way, um, and something that completely exacerbated our tensions with Moscow, uh, and we just kept doing it, you know? And so, to me, I think we've sort of created this 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 resurgent Russia just because we've picked these small problems that we're not really willing to fight over. And Brian, Brian, Brian's going to end with a final comment and a joke. Oh, he, not only did he not know that this was going to be a podcast tonight, but he didn't know that I was just going to ask him for a joke. He lives in California now, so he's funny. Yeah, yeah I wish that was funny. And he's a father now, by I'm the way. Congratulations to for his wife giving birth, Jamie giving birth to a very healthy, healthy. Baby. She was a rock star. She always is. It's great. The father's uh, the neglected hero of the family, <laughs> right? Yeah. No comment. Um, so I think. Uh, this is the joke, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say something about Putin, and that's going to be the joke. Um, so Putin, Obama, and Merkel rock into Obama. No, um, no I, look, I, I think the, the challenge that, that I see that sort of runs through some of this conversation is. That we have acknowledged, I think, that highly ideological debate in our domestic conversation has become a real problem. We're going to have this conversation about um, whether we shut down the government and then the, the debt limit, um, and that's really problematic. But this has spilled over into national security policy and foreign policy in a way that it would be interesting to really go back and look and see if the rhetoric has gotten worse in foreign policy or not. But... I had a conversation several months ago with senior um, senior elected House Republicans, and I one of the things I said to them was, and they were interested in doing something on Syria, intervening in Syria. And I said, well, look, one of the things that you should do if you actually really want to pressure the White House is stop screaming at them about Benghazi because that makes them cautious. That makes them not want to do things. And, it, uh, and if you want action in one place, then you need to then you need to lay off for um, accept a, risk. For yeah, then you need to then you need to lay off for an instance where they accepted risk in in Libya, um, because you're going to have to accept risk in these other situations as well. And the response I got was, well, that's not going to happen. And you know, it's easy to sort of throw stones at the Republicans on that, but if this situation were inverted, you know, at the end of the Bush administration, when the Bush administration had actually become much more practical, we still saw the same sort of obstructionist obstructionism from Democrats in the same way. And I think we really need to move past that moment precisely because we're not at that unipolar moment. Because we're at a place where American power is going to be increasingly challenged and we have to apply it more intelligently or over the medium term, we are going to lose. Right? We have real challenges on the medium and long term. Maybe long term maybe is a better way to put it. But, you know, decades out time frame and so I think the imperative for the United States to make smart national security decisions is stronger than it has been in the last 25, 30 years. Um, because on a grand scale, our place in the world is a little bit less secure than it once was, which is not to say that we are not still supreme. Can I just yeah. make a, uh, I don't know, you call it an isolationist argument, though, but this is the longest an, joke. No, this is not. <laughs> I, I've got I just wanted to say something so we can joke that's absolute gold, but I can't use it until you turn off. Oh, oh and I'm just teasing our listeners. <laughs> sorry. Um, there is a trillion dollar student debt 
bubble that is going yep. to burst. It is going to be possibly as bad as the the subprime mortgage. Really? Wow. wow. It's 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 absolutely frightening. Yeah. So we worry about you know what events unfold in 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 places like Syria or Kenya. No one's mentioned uh, South America, Brazil. Uh, any any place in where's, where's that? Yeah, yeah. Where where is that exactly? <laughs> um, but 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 you know, looking at these things domestically, um, I don't think it's a little Englander or, or a, 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 an isolationist mentality in the same way. Yeah, trillion dollar trillion dollars in student debt. I mean, <laughs> we have a lot to show for that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. No. A lot so, of unpaid interns. But I don't have the joke. A lot a lot of unpaid interns. Well, I guess who's they, got the material? We end on a very sad note here. On our, <laughs> yeah. Newest podcast at Warn the Rocks, but uh, thanks everyone for for doing this, including our our guests, surprise guests, and they weren't a surprise for you; they they were surprised to be guests. Uh, so, thanks very much, and uh, tune in next time. <laughs>